I do realize that today's Mother's Day, and um, you know, as an associate pastor, I get the the opportunity to preach occasionally. And I'm we're not doing Romans today. I have get choice uh, of my text, and I apologize to mothers. I am not preaching sermons <laughs> specifically for you today, but that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate my own mom. We of course appreciate mothers and value them very highly. Um, before I launch into my text and my outline, we're going to want to bring this down a little bit, Olivia. I'd like to begin with something of an exercise. If you'd indulge me for just a moment, just a moment, I'd like to ask you to close your eyes, close your eyes, and quiet your mind. I'll give you a moment to do this. I want you to think of a single word that describes God. Just one word. Do you have it? Okay, you can open your eyes. What did you think of? Tom, you're always responding. What did did you think of? (laughs) (laughs) What word describes God? Good. Love, sure. Mighty. Awesome. Peaceful. Holy. Yeah. These are all great words, right? I, I wrote some of these down too. I thought maybe you would think of holy, sovereign, eternal, just, loving, faithful, true, good. These are all glorious biblical descriptions of God. And there's a lot of words that accurately describe God, though I'll just say I, I imagine there will never be enough words to fully exhaustively capture all of the reality of what God is. But indulge me for a, a moment more. Um, I've left the outline on the back of the worship folder and on the screen intentionally blank. Sinners in the hands of a blank God. What does that bring to mind? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah, what, what word goes there? Someone, I already heard it. Many of you are probably thinking of Jonathan Edwards, right? His sermon, most famous or infamous, depending on who is talking about it, sermon titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, that was a sermon that powerfully drove, drove home the reality of God's righteous wrath and judgment on sinners who are found outside of Christ. That sermon was given by Edwards, on July 8, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut, and it was based on Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Edwards used that passage and then walked systematically through the reasons why sinners ought to heed this warning of Deuteronomy 32, 35, and cast themselves on the mercy of God. And this was the argument in brief, that God has all power to cast sinners into hell at any moment, that sinners rightly deserve to be cast into hell and are even now under a sentence of condemnation and objects of God's wrath. Further, the devil is ready to claim sinners as his own, 
And the principles of hell are already at work in the lives of sinners. And then to, to really drive home the point, I mean, he says, there's no security to be found in good health, in youth, in wisdom, in anything else. Even when you feel that you're not on the brink of eternity, you are. All people stand on the brink of eternity at every moment. To quote Edwards, there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. That's it. The response to this sermon was such that another minister who was present actually wrote in his diary uh, this. We met dear Mr. E of Northampton who preached a most awakening sermon from Deuteronomy 32-35. And before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying through the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? And oh, I'm going to hell. And what shall I do for Christ? Etc. Etc. This is actually what he said. So that the minister was obliged to desist. The shrieks and cries were piercing and amazing. He goes on to say, amazing and astonishing. The power of God was seen, and several souls were hopefully wrought upon that night. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's an appropriate title for the sermon that Edwards preached. And that main premise is is still true today. Uh, If you've not placed your trust in Christ, his righteousness, his atoning death on the cross, you are in more grave danger than you can ever imagine, even at this very moment. That's still true. It's not just puritanical, old-fashioned preaching. It's true. But I'm not preaching Deuteronomy 32-35 today. Today the text is Nehemiah 8, 1-12, and it has a decidedly different tone than the other one. So that I've actually titled today's sermon, Sinners in the Hands of a Happy God. And I realize that might strike you as odd, um, perhaps wrong. I hope to show that it's an appropriate heading or title for the passage before us today. So if you would turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. The summary sentence for today is repentant sinners can find refuge in the joy of of their Savior. There's just going to be two main sections of the sermon today. First, we'll look at harsh reality, and then we'll turn to consider a happy truth. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbaranah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. 
And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kelitza, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is what? Your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So the first part of the sermon, the harsh reality, you are a sinner. The paired books of Ezra and Nehemiah these are, these are a pair in the Hebrew Bible that used to be Ezra 1 and Ezra 2, and then later we kind of, like the title really rightfully should be Nehemiah, I think. But they are a pair. They go together. And they mark the end of the Babylonian exile with a proclamation from the Persian king Cyrus way back in Ezra 1, 2 through 4. He said, you know what, all the exiles should return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That work fell to Zerubbabel, was met with opposition, lasted about 20 years. Ezra later comes onto the scene in Ezra chapter 7. He was a scribe who had studied God's law. He was determined to teach the law and restore law observance in Israel. He was supported in this work by the Persian king Artaxerxes. One of the main uh, focuses of his reforms was the intermarriage of Israelites with foreigners. And so Ezra called the people to confess their sin and repent, separating themselves from foreign influences. That was met by some opposition, but received relatively well. And finally, the book of Nehemiah opens with Nehemiah as cupbearer to this king, Artaxerxes, in the Persian capital city of Susa. And he hears a troubling word about Jerusalem. All right, so they've already, exiles have already returned to Jerusalem. The temple's rebuilt. But he hears word that the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, right, so way back by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, they were broken down, the city was defenseless. So Nehemiah makes a request of the king, I mean, he prays, then he makes this request, it's a bold request, to return and rebuild the wall, and he is surprisingly supported by King Artaxerxes, though he's met with some opposition once he gets to Jerusalem. The wall's finished in 52 days, which is, like, astonishing. It's amazing. And at this point, Ezra reenters the story at the start of today's text. There's a lot of, a lot of history, short amount of time. All right. So 
Let me summarize even further. Zerubbabel, rebuilding the temple. Ezra, reinstating the law. Nehemiah, restoring, rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. These three work to bring restoration to the people of Israel after the end of their exile, being carried off captive to Babylon. Zerubbabel first, then Ezra and Nehemiah later. And that sets the stage for what happens here in Nehemiah 8, 1, where they're gathering in the square before the water gate. So look with me again at our text before us. Verse 1, the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. The people gathered as one man, unified. And they, the people, told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so Ezra does so in verse 2. He brings the law. And he brings it before the assembly, which is made up of all the people who could understand what they heard. That's going to come up later. And he read, verse 3, from morning until midday in the presence of all who could understand. Again, there are several notable features here. First, people are gathered in unity, right, of their own desire, their own volition, with the purpose of hearing God's law. This is a a sort of spiritual sensitivity here, a stirring of God that prompts an attentiveness to his word. That's what verse 3 says. The ears of the people were attentive. They were to, they were toward the word. Focused, directed, which is really incredible considering what we've just been told, this reading of the law, uh, it started at first light and lasted until midday. Like early morning, the language there is at light. Started at light. Like first light, we're starting. We're going to read till midday. Um, I'm not going to do that today. (laughs) I don't think we should emulate this practice on a regular basis. But consider how foreign it seems to the modern sensibility to spend this much time devoted to anything, let alone God's word. But maybe not so foreign, actually. How many hours do we devote to binge-watching television, Netflix? Guilty as charged. Our, Our attention span isn't the problem, you see. You can spend hour upon hour devoted to any number of things, actually. Uh, Home improvement projects. uh, You might be YouTube, Netflix, fishing or hunting, gardening, boating, reading, video gaming. The list goes on and on. The real problem is our hearts are not captivated by God. That's the real problem. Now, I'm not going to, again, I'm not advocating that we ought to do this, but just struck by the fact that people could stand and listen to God's word for six hours. Just a thought. Intermarriage of God's people was a problem, right? Foreign influences were a problem. Babylonian captivity of Judah was a problem. The destruction of Jerusalem's temple and walls, that was a problem. But at the end of the day, They were symptoms of the much larger problem, which is that Israel had forsaken God. So reconstruction of the temples, that's a step in the right direction. Rebuilding the walls, that's a good idea. But restoring God's word to its rightful place, perhaps the most important work 
done by these three reformers. Again, not to say the temple's not important, not to say the walls aren't necessary. Both are crucial, both are needed. But what happened in Nehemiah 8 is the kind of spiritual renewal that God's people desperately needed. And apparently they understood this and they even wanted it. They built a special platform for the purpose of reading the book of the law in verse 4. They had prepared this beforehand. It wasn't, uh, you know, extemporaneous. Like, he just gets up and like, hey, can you bring it out? Let's do this. They built the platform. They wanted to do this. So when Ezra opened the book in verse 5, he's in the sight of all the people, and the people stood. In verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. The people responded with, amen, amen. They lift their hands. They bow their heads. They worship the Lord. So the other notable feature here is that more than attentive minds... We have like postures of respect, standing for the reading of God's word, reverence, worship, and acceptance, words of acceptance. Those words, amen, amen, it's like surely, surely, verily, you know, true, that's true. And they bow their heads and they worship. You know, God's word is worthy to be met with all of those responses even today. Because God is worthy to be met with those responses. Like they hear the word and they worship the Lord. I want to highlight one more thing. In verse 7, we read that a group of people, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Now, verses 2 and 3 assume that people can understand God's word. We shouldn't jump too quickly from that. God speaks to us in ways that we can understand. It's not some secret message to decode. Um, It's not merely for scholars or for pastors or for professional uh, literary critics, right? God's word is for ordinary men and women, boys and girls. It's for you. It's perfectly understandable. I want to be clear. But that doesn't mean it's always easy to understand without help either. So one of the like, corrupting effects of sin in the world is its ability to hinder our right understanding of God's world and God's word. It's why we need math teachers and English teachers and Bible teachers. You can understand math, but you may need some help understanding it. Right? You can understand English but you may need some help understanding it. You can't understand the Bible. You may need some help understanding it. And needing help doesn't mean that you leave it to the professionals, the so-called professionals. Math is to be taught. English is to be taught. And so God's word is to be taught. It's not for Ezra, not for the Levites alone. Lock it up in some tower like you keep it. That's good for you, but we don't need it. No, it's for the people. So verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's a purpose, so you can understand. It's also important, this is just an aside, that it's not one person, one sole arbiter of truth that God gives to disseminate. Like, here's what the text means. It's a group of people here, a community of people. Um, That's just just what's in the text, right? Like, your pastor's... You know, we, we've studied in seminary. We're, we're studying in community with people. We don't just, like, hopefully, right, 
hopefully, we're not just sitting alone with our Bible and saying, what do I think this means? You know, we're, we're trying to, as God's people, collectively understand the words that God has given to us. And we help each other. And then we teach. Right? That's what we do. So all of this context gets us to the harsh reality. I know it's a lot of background, but we're here. The people who can understand are gathered. The book of the law is read. The people are postured to accept the word of God. And the Levites read and explain so that the people do understand. And what follows is mourning and weeping. Like, look at verse 9. I'm going to go to the last half. All the for because, so we're going to come back to this later. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. People wept as they heard the words. The question is, why? Why weep? The temple is built. The wall has been built. The word is being read and taught. Why weep? There's been a number of reasons suggested to this question, but I think the clearest thing is, is this. In understanding the law, the people have come to realize that fundamental problem we talked about earlier, right? That the reason the temple was destroyed in the first place, the reason the walls were, were torn down, the reason the law wasn't obeyed was because the people were sinners. They had forsaken God. They realized that. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar sieged Jerusalem. He broke through the walls. He tore down the temple. Where was God? He was giving his people what they wanted. He was giving them over to their own destructive desires. But while Israel had forsaken the Lord, he did not fully forsake his people. People were exiled, but they survived as a whole. They returned in part. The temple was rebuilt, though not as glorious as it was before. And God's law was brought back. God may have hidden his face, God may have withheld his protection, but he did not ultimately and finally turn his back on his people. In this moment, the people realized that they were the ones who had turned their back on God. They were in the wrong. God is always in the right. And that harsh reality is still true today. You are by nature and by choice, a sinner, deserving of God's righteous wrath. God is not to blame for the state of your heart, your home, your health. Sin spoils God's good creation. And I want to be careful here. Um, it's not a one-to-one correspondence, right? That's clear. Your sin may, may not be the direct reason that you are sick or suffering. Like, your sin may not be directly. And sometimes God uses sickness to show us his glory and help us cling to him. But sin as a whole has corrupted all the things that God has created to be good. It corrupts our minds. It deceives our hearts. It breaks down our relationship with others. And it's a result of the brokenness. All this sickness is a result of brokenness of the world brought by sin. If we're honest with ourselves, we're pretty good at dismissing our own sin, finding fault in others, and forsaking God's word. The mourning and weeping of the people of Israel, the wailing and screaming of those listening to Edwards' sermon, 
suggest to you that those are necessary steps in the discovery of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like stars, when do they appear the most bright and beautiful, but on the darkest of nights? And so the grace of God appears bright and beautiful against the pitch black darkness of our sin. Do you realize the depth of your sin today? Have you taken stock of your heart? How attentive are you to the word of God? How obedient to his commands? Can you say with the psalmist, your steadfast love is better than life or with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain? Or here's another test. Look at the fruit of the Spirit. You see the fruit of the Spirit in your life for the works of the flesh. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you see God's Spirit working those qualities in your life, those virtues? Or alternatively, do you find that you have little love, fleeting happiness, constant anxiety, relational strife, zero patience, rudeness, bitterness, fickleness, harshness, and your desires and emotions are just simply out of control? Just just a question, just an honest question. If you're brutally honest with yourself, if you take stock of the past week, thinking through your actions and your attitudes, your desires, your words, your emotions, your purchases, your use of time, your stewardship of your body, you may find a list of sins half a mile long. Like, that's, that's probably true of me, that's, that's true of you. So the question is, what must we do to be saved? Right? God, save us from our enemies, but more importantly, save us from ourselves. There's plenty of reason here to weep. Like, our sin is really terrible. I know the ugliness of my own heart sometimes. It's nasty stuff, our sin. But weeping is for the night, and joy comes in the morning. Weeping is not the last word of our text today. And that's where we meet the happy truth. The happy truth, harsh reality was you are a sinner. The happy truth is that God delights to save sinners. Look with me at verse 9 again. They say, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Verse 10, he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. Don't weep. Feast instead. Now, I'm not the first person to point this out, but skip ahead to verse 12 with me, if you would. Where it says, the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is interesting, right? We had just seen in verse 8, they understood the reading from the law. And in verse 9, they wept. In verse 12, they are said to be rejoicing because they understood the words declared to them. So, what words? What are the words declared to them? What words could cause them to rejoice 
greatly and to feast. Go with, with me, if you would, to the last part of verse 10. I know we're bouncing around, but the last part of verse 10. You may know this verse by heart. Do not be grieved. That's the command again. Don't, don't weep. Don't grieve. Why? He says for. It's the reason given, right? For. Pay attention to what comes next. The reason to not grieve is that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Right? So these must be the words that produce rejoicing that are understood in verse 12. They understood the words that were declared to them. Well, it wasn't the words of the law because that caused them to weep in verse 9. Verse 12 is the linchpin. It's I mean, verse uh, 10 is the linchpin. It's the turning point. It's how you get to verse 12, rejoicing. They were grieving. They're told not to grieve. And the reason they shouldn't grieve is that the joy of the Lord is their strength. Now, full disclosure, that I, I got the idea to preach the sermon from uh, the conference that we attended in February that was titled, Serious Joy, Gravity and Gladness in a Groaning World. And the, at the conference, one speaker gave a, a talk on this text, and he pointed something unique out in the, the Hebrew of this verse where we say, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Um, that word translated strength in English is most often translated in the Old Testament actually as stronghold or refuge. So in other words, it's a place of strength, not just like an internal quality of your spirit, right? Um, How does that change our understanding of the words that produce rejoicing? The joy of the Lord is your refuge. What does that mean? Does it mean that God God is happy because you're safe? How do I get there? If you, if you read that the joy of the Lord is your refuge, like the walls are finished, uh, the joy of the Lord, what makes God happy is that you have refuge in the walls. No, that's not it. That ain't it, chief, as our youth would say. Um, the word order and structure is important here. It says the joy of the Lord, it is your stronghold or your refuge. God is a God of joy as much as he is a God of wrath. And, it, and I'm, I'm going to, all right, this is going to, I'm just going to step in it. We may even say that biblically, theologically, God is more rightfully a God of joy than wrath. And, and uh, you might be like, whoa, hang on. How, how can you say that? Um, is that, am I in dangerous territory here? Let's put this to the test. Before God created the heavens and the earth, God simply was. Do we agree to this? That God is eternal uncreated, self-existent. He needs nothing. Now imagine with me the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, existing in a perfect loving unity from before the foundation of the world. The question is, is there wrath there? Is the Father eternally wrathful in himself? And I, I, I may be completely out of my theological league here, but so pl- please take this with a grain of salt. But I would humbly submit to you that God's wrath is the outworking of his eternal justice, his righteousness, when confronted with the reality of sin. Sin does not exist in God from eternity. Just as people are not eternal but are indeed everlasting, I believe God's wrath to be everlasting without end, but it does have a beginning. God's wrath begins where sin begins. At least that's how I understand it. That's, I could be, could be wrong, I'm fallible, but... Consider 1 Chronicles 16, 25, and 27. You can turn there, but it's just two verses. 
Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and what are in his place? Joy. Strength and joy are in his place. Or consider that Paul in 1 Timothy 1.11 calls the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That word there, blessed, used like blessed are the pure in heart, like you remember the Beatitudes? Used to denote favor, blessing, being fortunate, being privileged, or just simply happy. Now I'm going to, Let's keep that logic going. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Who blesses God? Himself. Who gives favor to God? How is God privileged, or worse yet, how is he fortunate? That sounds like God's lucky. The glory of the fortunate God? That doesn't sound very glorious to me. Like, God got lucky? God doesn't get lucky. God doesn't receive favor. God gives favor. When we say that God is a blessed God, what we mean is that God is a happy God, that he is content in himself, that he is satisfied. That's glorious. That's good news. Strength and joy. And I know sometimes we try to distinguish between joy and happiness, and we we say, well, joy is deeper. It's more lasting happiness. It's not circumstantial. At least it shouldn't be. Um, Happiness, that kind of comes and goes. Um, you know, I feel happy sometimes. I, I know I've got joy all the time, supposed to. Joy can't be the same as happiness, right? But what is joy then? Like, explain to me the feeling of joy without being happy. See, I, th- I think we're robbing ourselves of joy by trying to distinguish it from happiness. Like, like, I get it. Joy isn't circumstantial. That is true. God gives us his joy. It's still ours even when you don't feel it. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't feel it. That's broken, right? That's why the Bible is filled with verses that say to rejoice. Rejoice always, right? Joy is what we need. Joy is what we want. It's what the world is looking for, often in all the wrong places. It is true happiness, and happiness forever and full. And it's found in God. Joy is in his place. And since God is a joyous, happy God, The joy of the Lord. It's no wonder that joy is the second in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy. It's right there. It's no wonder that the garden where God walked with Adam and Eve was named Eden. A word that means delight or bliss in Hebrew. Garden of happiness. Garden of joy. It's no wonder that the psalmist says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's no wonder that the angel of the Lord announced to shepherds in the field good news of great, what? Joy for all people. It's no wonder that Jesus said, These things have I spoken to you that my, what? Joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's no wonder that the disciples in the book of Acts were filled with much joy in the Holy Spirit because God is a God of joy. It's no wonder that Isaiah prophesied of Zion in Isaiah 35, that the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting what? Joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. 
Or in Isaiah 51.3, that joy and gladness will be found in Zion. God is a God of joy. Eternal happiness in the perfect loving unity of a self-sufficient tri-unity of God. I know these are big, like, theological words. But God is well-pleased in his son, Jesus. And Jesus coming to save us is good news of great joy. Where God is, there is joy. We sing that in a, a song that we added recently, right? There's joy in the house of the Lord. And so my title springs from this text, The Joy of the Lord. God is a happy God, and we are sinners in his hands. Sinners in the hands of a happy God. I want to go back to the very beginning now and quote from Edwards' sermon, okay? Just a quote from his sermon. There is no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Like, he can do it. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. Sometimes an earthly prince meets with a great deal of difficulty to subdue a rebel who has found means to fortify himself and has made himself strong by the numbers of his followers. But it is not so with God. There is no fortress that is any defense from the power of God. Do you see the connection there? There is no fortress that is any defense from the power of God to cast us into hell. What was that word in Nehemiah again? Fortress. Refuge. What was the fortress? The joy of the Lord. So what's the refuge from? Find refuge in the joy of a happy God. What do you find a refuge from? Is it from Babylon? Is it from Persia? From cultural influences that pull us from our covenant commitment to God? No. The fortress that, that we need, the refuge that we seek, it's a refuge from God's own righteous wrath against sin. From God's power to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. He has a right to do it. He's able to do it. We deserve it. We are sinners in his hands. But consider the message of Nehemiah 8 is both realizing the harsh reality of our sin and the happy truth that God delights to save sinners. That's not explicitly stated here, but I do think it's an appropriate step. Don't weep. Today is holy to the Lord your God. The Lord is your God. The joy of the Lord is a refuge. Refuge, there's salvation. Joy, there's the delight of God. God delights to save sinners. And in fact, that's always been the hope of God's people. You see, the temple was rebuilt, and the law was obeyed for a while, at least. The walls were restored. But fast forward to the end of Nehemiah in chapter 13, and Nehemiah, he's been away for some time, right? What does he find when he comes back to Jerusalem? The priest had prepared a chamber for a foreign relative in the house of God, contrary to God's law, right? Directly disobeying. The Levites weren't given their allotted portions, so the house of God was left forsaken. They had to go, like, we can't feed ourselves, we've got to go work the fields. People were working on the Sabbath directly against God's law. Sinner's going to sin, I guess, right? That's not, not an excuse. 
But what it highlights is that rebuilding the temple wasn't the answer to sin or its effects. The restoration of the walls wasn't the answer to sin and its effects. Even hearing God's law wasn't the final answer to sin or its effects. The joy of the Lord is your refuge. The answer to sin is not a temple, it's not a law, and it's not a wall, but it's a savior. That's the answer to sin. Hebrews says, look to Jesus, who for the what? Look to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross because of the joy set before him. What was the joy set before Jesus that allowed him to endure the cross? that enabled him to endure the cross the way he did. The joy of a people, bought by his blood, reconciled to God, destined for eternal joy in his presence. That's the joy set before Jesus. You don't deserve forgiveness. You certainly can't earn it. The reality is that you are a sinner. Own it. Admit it. Confess it grieve it. But here's the, here's the good part. When we own our sin, when we confess it, I try to teach this to John, right? Uh, our son. Hey, John, you know what the beautiful thing about Jesus is? You mess up all the time, but guess what the Bible says? When you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's who he is. It's what he does. What a happy truth. What glorious good news. What a reason to rejoice that Jesus considered your salvation a joy even as he endured the cross. I love Chick-fil-A. I know this is like a massive shift from the cross to Chick-fil-A. Maybe I'm getting hungry. Maybe it's because Chick-fil-A is always closed on Sunday um, and subconsciously my brain is telling me that I want what I can't have. Um, But apart from the amazing food right? Here's what I love about Chick-fil-A. What do they tell you when you order through the drive-thru? It will be my pleasure to serve you at the window, you know, something like that. I've never felt that to be an untrue statement either, you know, like the company has built such a, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not being paid to say this, um, the company, has, they, they've created just such an atmosphere of, of joy and service, like it's really wonderful. It's, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel, but it is woefully inadequate to describe the pain of the cross that Jesus endured. Like, consider what Jesus endured. Flesh tearing of flogging. Thorns beaten into his head. Public humiliation stripped of his clothing. Nailed to a cross by hands and feet. It's my pleasure. Shock. Dehydration. Suffocation. Pain upon pain upon pain. Glad to do it. And that physical pain was nothing compared to the crushing weight of sin that caused him to cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The eternal joy and pleasure of the Father 
exchanged for the white-hot wrath that our sin deserved. It's my joy. Like That's the scandal of the gospel. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. The Son in whom the Father is well pleased, taking on the full displeasure of the Father for our sin and feeling even forsaken by the Father precisely because we had forsaken God. And he says of all this, it's my pleasure, it's my joy, I gladly do it again. For the joy set before him endured the cross. That's the refuge, guys. That's the refuge. The joy of a savior. The harsh reality is that you are a sinner. You should grieve that. You should feel the weight of that. And then you rejoice in this happy truth that God delights to save sinners. Salvation is promised to all who turn from sin to this joyful Savior. So that repentant sinners, repentant sinners, can find real refuge in the joy of their Savior. Refuge from wrath, refuge from condemnation, and hell. Run to him. Today's the day of salvation. Today is the day to receive mercy. Flee from your sin. Fly to Christ. Take refuge in him and rejoice. Because you are a sinner. But believer, you are a sinner in the hands of a happy God who delights to save sinners. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we confess before you that we have often not felt the weight of our own sin. We have often not paid attention to your word as we ought. We have often not grieved over our failure to keep your word as we ought. But today is a day for joy. Like the people then, rejoicing in the joy of the Lord, we ask that you would help us to rejoice even greater because your Savior has come. We have received not just a new temple in Christ, not just a new wall, not just an, an old law rediscovered, but the very word of God made flesh who tabernacled among us, who is really truly a refuge for our souls, who considered it a joy to endure the cross and despise the shame. Father, would you help us to run to him today? Would we flee from our sin and fly to Christ? And would he be the source of our joy? There's no greater joy no greater joy than knowing the joy of Jesus. 
We thank you for all this in his name. Amen.